Welcome to the Liberty Talks podcast with John Douglas and Michael Anderson. Today we have special guest Justin Lurie, former congressional candidate for the Republican Party here in Houston, Texas. We have to find a way to talk and have dialogue and be tolerant between other views. You have to have open dialogue and that's where free speech is so important. Consent's a very important thing and today in the Me Too movement it's been very important because I think it's really opened up a lot of eyes. I think we should get away from this hookup culture and get back to relationships because when you have a relationship, you have that communication, you have that connection. If you committed sexual assault, it doesn't matter when it was, you should be held accountable for that. However, we have to make sure that we actually make sure they committed sexual assault and we have to make sure that all allegations are verified. They'll put in these programs thinking that it'll help everyone, but what they forget is that the pathway to hell is paved with good intention. And I think that's what this whole movement is all about anyways, is uh, trying to be open to ideas. Today we'll be speaking about Justin's experience running for Congress, the election, and the temperament of the country. Justin, thank you so much for being here. Well, happy to be here, fellas. All right, so you uh, currently just ran for Congress recently. Tell us a little bit about that and how that was. It was funny because the day that Ted Poe announced his retirement, it was almost a year ago to the day. It was, was early, in, early November. I was in his office. You're in his office? Mm. All right. Next time, please give me a text. Give me a heads up <laughs> that he's going to make the big announcement. And it's funny because that, that very day, you, you find out, you know, it kind of hits the grapevine, if you will. And the first thing I did is a text my wife. And I said, hey, we're, we're ahead of schedule because we were... We were planning out something like this, but from years from now, we wanted to, to build a whole base and infrastructure and, and build a full, let's call it a five-year plan. But then, you know, life happens, and then Congressman Poe announces retirement, and we said, all right. I said, uh, hey, can we move forward on this? You know, she was at work. She was at her office, and she just gets a random text message from me. It says, hey, do you mind if I run for Congress? And so, of course, I'm just sitting there holding the phone thinking, come on, come on, come right back, right back. Because you don't know what she's doing. She could be on the phone, she could be in a meeting, who knows. So she writes back and she just writes back, yes, the emphatic yes. And that was the morning that our lives changed forever. That was a long story. What were we talking about? Well, uh, that was actually a good story. And uh, it uh, leads me to my next question. What inspired you to run for Congress? Well, you ever feel passionate? Yes. About something that you believe in? Of course. Um, I never thought of myself as, as an ideologue. And then speaking to Philip Aronoff, who's running in the 29th district, who won the nomination for, uh, for U.S. House, right, against Sylvia Garcia. And Philip and I are out one day, and he said, Justin, I think you're an ideologue just like me. And I said, okay, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you believe in some core principles, right? Low taxes, low regulation, that the economy is not run by Washington. The economy is decentralized. And the way the economy will run best is if Washington gets out of the way. And I said, that's 100% what I believe in. So yes, I'd be an, ide an ideologue. I mean, all those years of Obama, beginning in 2009 when he took the oath of office, we went in the wrong direction. And the economy, it showed. It was clear. So I wanted to go to Washington. I still do, right? And I want to put forward this agenda to get government out of the way and to create the environment where people can, can grow, where companies can grow, where the markets can thrive. And you can't do that with Washington first. It's got to be business first. 
If we can grow the economy, we can solve so many other troubles. Uh, I would tend to agree with that. I think uh, conservative values are really important to growing the economy and to making the U.S. a better place. And I, I want to ask you a question, the same question I ask every politician I interviewed them, I asked this Dan Crenshaw uh, uh, whenever I interviewed him. And uh, it's, it's always interesting to hear the answers. My question is, what do you think makes you qualified to run for Congress? You have a vision. Mm-hmm. You have to have a vision. It's kind of like what, is, what makes a good CEO compared to a bad CEO. And it's usually the same word. It's vision. And you have to sell that vision internally and externally. And that vision has to be achievable. The vision has to be something that's going to move the country or the company in a positive direction. You can actually achieve it, right? It can't be something like a 50-year goal. It needs to be more like a 5-year goal, a 10-year goal. So if we can achieve that vision and we can bring people together, we can grow the economy, we can grow our country, and we can be prosperous. All right, and so during the primary election, obviously Danny Crenshaw uh, uh, ran uh, and he won his runoff, mm-hmm. and uh, so that put you out. So, what's your plans for the future now? Uh, well, the plan is to be a good friend to all my friends who are currently on the ballot, uh, absolutely including Dan. Dan are, are, and I are very close. I'm, I'm honored to be his friend and I'm trying to help him succeed and trying to help some of my other friends succeed who are on the ballot and keep Harris County as red as could be and Texas as red as could be and try to keep the Republican majority in the U.S. House and try to gain some seats in the Senate. I mean, I don't have any real um, specific political goals for myself. Uh, politics is a team game and I want to be a team player. I want to get into the meat of when you were running for Congress. What was it like just every day on the campaign trail talking to Houstonians, talking to people, advocating your principles, and trying to show them your vision? It's, it's funny because it's, it's a learning curve, right? You could be around this a lot. You know, I worked on various campaigns starting in, in 1998. That's when I first worked on campaigns when I was in college. And when it's you... It's different, right? And and yet you can know a lot of people. But I'm now going to far, you know, hour hour and change, two hour drive to areas I don't really know very well. It's a big, it's a big, big district. And even though I've been in business for a long time, even though I've I've created and run companies, and I, I belong to different organizations and some different boards, it's still different. It's a it's it's kind of like when I do public speaking. I go out there and talk about business issues, corporate strategy, mergers and acquisitions, right? investment banking. But when you're talking politics, it's a completely different skill. And I try to explain that to people, but it's very hard to articulate. So when I was first on the campaign trail, let's say November, uh, almost, uh, almost a year ago, and I'd see some of uh, my competitors. I'd see Kevin Roberts out. We'd be at the same party. And i think, you know what? Kevin is really good at this. You know, I'm talking about the hobnobbing. To go in there and, and, and shaking hands, and, you know, kissing babies and all the, the typical stuff. And I noticed Kevin, and he seems to know everybody, even though I'm like in a, a territory place I've never been. And I think, oh, he's really good. And then I see uh, my good friend there, uh, David Balat. And I think, hey, Balat's really good at this too. And I thought, all right, well, that's where I need to be. That's where I, I have to learn this skill. I have to get better at it. And I remember talking to my wife driving home one night. Uh, Again, almost a year ago, let's call it 11 and a half months ago. And I said, man, I, I said, I have, a, I have a curve here. I got to get better and I got to get better fast. And she said, remember, Kevin's been campaigning for, what, two, three years? 
uh, being in the state house. I mean, he campaigned at least a year before that. He, this is something he knows how to do inherently. And then David, uh, David was campaigning for over a year at that point because he was campaigning the seventh district for Culberson. So these are two guys who have really a lot of experience campaigning for themselves. So I just recognize that as, all right, I gotta get my skill up, I have to get my ability up, and I think within two weeks, I, I developed it. You developed it quickly, because you have to. It's sink or swim. And if you don't do it, you're in the wrong profession. You can't do it. That's really interesting, and I think it leads into my next question is, what is one piece of advice that you'd give for someone seeking office in general, whether it's Congress or just trying to run for office? All right, so I, I get this question a lot. Uh, a lot of my friends around the country have asked me, they said, hey, we love what you did. You know, you did you did a phenomenal job. Um, do you think I could do it? And I, I don't know about different levels, but at this level, because this is, this is what's called the major leagues, right? And I said, all right, there's a, there's a microphone, and there's 200 people in front of it, and they're waiting. Do you run to that microphone and want to grab that mic and you just, you just can't, you, you, you crave it, all right? Do you, are you kind of like, ah, I could, yes, I could, no, you know? Or are you like, oh, there's no way, there's no way I want to pick up that mic in front of 200 people. And there's only one real answer here if you want to be at a high level of politics because you have to go basically fight Chuck Schumer and you got to go fight um, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee and you got you got you got to fight me too and you got to fight your way and you got to push us all out of there like we're playing football to go grab that microphone because everyone at this level is a shark everyone's good anyone who's successful is a shark so that's the big thing if you have to have that personality you have to have that drive it's not that you put up with it it's not that you, you're like, oh, I guess I could do it. You can't be ambivalent. You have to want it. You have to crave it. All right. Well, I think that's uh, pretty well said. And so one thing I was wondering, though, whenever you're on the campaign trail, mm -hmm. uh, tell me like some of the hard parts talking to your constituents. Is there a balance between constituents and uh, talking to people with all the money and people who can help get your name out there? Like, like how, how do you balance that and... What would you say is the most important aspect to that? All right, so the money part is, I'll answer that one first. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you, this is the thing, this is the real nitty gritty that most people never talk about, is that the money is, is very much relative. Uh, and I'll explain what that means, but two things. One, uh, verbal commitments aren't worth anything. Uh, I think I had as many verbal commitments for money as, as anybody out there. I mean, just... It's a verbal and a check are two very different things. And I, I think people who are considering running for office, they are going to do that, you know, the triple F list, as you call it in business, right? Friends, families, and another F O O. I wouldn't even say the whole word out. Fools, right? Well, I guess I did, right? <laughs> but that's what, if you're starting a business, that's what you do. You call it triple F friends, family, and fools. And, and politics is the same thing. And then once you start working that list, and people will say to you, it's the same questions. All right, how much money do you have? How much money do you need? And so the average race for U.S. House in America, you need 1.4 million to win a race. That's primary and general. But remember that number is really, really skewed with the averages because you have races like uh, Georgia with Karen Handel and John Ossoff, a special election. Uh, Ossoff raised 52 million. Karen Handel spent 26. And Karen Handel won. Right. So that 52 million is still factored in. But you have other races, like let's take Sheila Jackson Lee. She spends, um, last time I looked at it, between six hundred dollars to $800,000. Because she doesn't need to. 
<laughs> she she's gonna win with 80 some percent of the vote so she doesn't need to spend tons and tons of money so there's there's this crazy thing about how you make the average so you get into a race like this one with kathleen and i'm, I'm saying anything negative to this kathleen but kathleen said i'm gonna kathleen walkworth she said i'm gonna spend uh whatever it takes to win which is sick i don't i don't disparage her for that she has that right and if i had the financial wherewithal to go to do the same thing i would I would do the same thing. So she came out of the gate and we already knew she already put, I think it was 2 million in the campaign bank account. So now people said, hey, Jess, we think you're great. You know, the donors, we think you're, you're blah, 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 right? One, two, and three. But if I give you the max, which is, you know, if me and my wife both contribute, both sign the check, we can give you uh, 2,700 times two times two, right? So 2,700 for the primary and the general, and then uh, then your wife, you double it. So that's uh, 5,400, 10,800. But if I give you 10,800 and I get three of my friends to give you 10,800, but you only have 33,000 bucks. But Kathleen has 2 million. And if you start, let's say you get yourself 500,000, Kathleen might just say, I'm going to put another million in. I'm going to bury you. So why would I put my good money chasing, you know, after bad? And that's where the big, the big problem is. And I'm not saying that the rules should be changed. Dan Crenshaw and I talked about this a lot of times. Uh, we talked about it on TV. We talked about it in interviews. Uh, should the laws be changed about campaign finance to limit personal contributions as a candidate? And I'm, I'm conflicted by it. I'm conflicted. Uh, so it's very, very hard to raise money if you're not... Dan is famous for good reason. I don't take it away from him. He's famous for a good reason. So Dan was able to raise some good funds, but he was only able to raise money at the end the final area, did you really, really raise money? Because people are hesitant to contribute unless you have X dollars. So what I found is I needed to find, I needed to put in, let's say, at least 300,000 of your own money. And then once you put in that floor of X hundred thousand, then people will then contribute more money to you because you had to have that real base. But when you're on the phone, you say, hey, what do you have? Oh, yeah, we have 50K. Oh, 50K. So you have things like, you can reach 200,000, I'll throw a party for you. You reach three hundred thousand, I'll get some more friends to contribute to you. So you have that those those different bridges. But then, if even if you get that three hundred thousand, they might still say, "Oh, well, Kathy has, she's put in five million. You know, what's the point?" And that's the that's the. This is a very long answer, so I'm sorry to go on for a long time. But that's the thing that people don't always talk about. All right, but the answer answer your question. You said, "Well, do you speak to them differently?" And yes. It's, you don't talk, you, you're talking about the same issues. That's fine, but the conversation is very different. It's, um, what have you raised? Who have you raised it from? How much have you contributed? How much do you need? How much do your competitors have? And you're gonna have all those solid answers, real quick. I mean, it's all pretty easy stuff. If, if you're involved in it, you should know the top of your head quickly, easily. But that's what the core conversation is. Um, but of course, they wanna hear your 30 second speech. If you can't sum yourself up in 15 seconds, you're, again, you're in the wrong business. All right, and uh, you you said something interesting, which I think provides a good segue into uh, some of the issues I wanna bring up to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talk about campaign finance law. How do you feel about campaign finance law? Do you think that should, do you think it's unconstitutional? Do you think it's just and relevant? Do you think we should have it? How do you feel about that? I'm torn on it, on so many different areas. I mean, the whole thing people talk about, Citizens United. Uh, you know, where do I fall on that? 
I'm not sure. I, I really do go back and forth in my own head. I think that, I remember this a couple of years ago, I spoke to a big attorney, one of the types of attorneys in, who, who speak before the Supreme Court, that's on a level guy. And we were talking about putting together a campaign and how to organize it and everything like that. And I read that 500 page FEC booklet about raising money, spending money, because the last thing I ever want to do is violate one of these rules. And I said, gosh, this, this book is just, it's so intense, it's so difficult. And he said something pretty, pretty obvious. He said, all right, you gotta remember, the people who wrote this book, the people who are in power now, wrote this book specifically to prevent people like you from coming in and knocking them out of power. And that's what these laws are. They're unbelievably complicated to try to perpetuate the current power structure, which makes sense. And I think that's what most people would do if they were holding the power, they don't wanna lose it. That's just human nature. So in terms of the $2,700 limit for federal races, meaning um, per candidate per election, so you could have 2,700 for a primary, 2,700 for a runoff, 2,700 for the general. I mean, that's, it doesn't, doesn't bother me. It seems, it seems kind of fair. I don't know if there should be a limit for personal contributions. I feel like you, if I had a hundred million bucks, I want to give two million to my campaign. I think that's, uh, I think that's legitimate too. Uh, yeah, I, to me, it's blatantly unconstitutional. I think that money is a form of free speech and who you mm -hmm. want to give your money to is a form of free speech protected by the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. It does help keep the people uh, in power, in power. But uh, yeah, to me, it is blatantly unconstitutional. And I think it's a good way to bring Michael in because uh, it's your libertarian side of that. How do you feel about it? It seems interesting. I mean, most definitely libertarians in general would say, you know, it's a state. We don't want any state rules. Um, I think I think I'm kind of with Justin on it. I'm really conflicted in general just because I know how hard it is to get into politics and how money is absolutely everything to get your name out there. You have to get over this hurdle. So that's 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 really big to try to, you know, run for office and try to represent your constituents. But um, you know, generally I don't come on the side of the state, but I mean, I'd be someone to open to talk to someone to see how we could figure out how to get money out of politics in a positive way, but you know, I'm I'm definitely not someone advocating for the state right now. Okay, you talk about money out of politics. Mm -hmm. I think I have a very uncommon point of view in this. I don't think there's enough money in politics. If you look at 2016 and the presidential election year and all the money was spent, records amount of money. You know, Procter & Gamble spends more money in advertising than all the political money spent in 2016. If you look at how much beer advertising is done, it's about, the ratio is 10 to 1 in 2016. $10 in beer ads for every $1 in political ads. So it's, I don't think there's nearly enough money. I mean, which is more important in our society? Political ads, so you can understand. I mean, yeah, some political ads are good, some are bad, right? That's, that's the territory. But to get your name out there, get your ideas out there. And which is more important? Is it $10 for beer or $1 for politics? But... This decides who wins, decides healthcare, decides borders, trade, I mean, education, everything, right? They decide everything. So it's probably not nearly enough money. I mean, even like, let's talk about Dan for a sec, uh, Crenshaw. So after, after the runoff, Dan and I, I went down to his gym, went to go work out. He, you know, he's down in downtown, he's inside the loop. 
And, you know, he's a celebrity, right? The guy's on national TV all the time. We go to the gym, which is down the street from where he lives. Literally, 30-second walk. There's a sign outside across the street from the gym with his face on it, and it says, Dan Crenshaw for Congress, right? So I get there a couple minutes early. I beat him there, and I say to the guys, it's a very small gym. Like, I go to Lifetime, which is a giant gym. Dan's gym is like the size of his room. And so... You know, it's a, it's a hippie gym, as I call it. If he hears this, he'll laugh at me and yell at me. So we go there. So I get there a few minutes early. And I tell the guy at the desk, I said, hey, I'm here with one of your members. I'm just a, a few minutes early. He'll be here in five minutes, whatever. He goes, sure, what's the guy's name? I said, oh, his name is, because I wasn't trying to name drop him, right? He's just going to look him up. I said, uh, Dan Crenshaw. And the guy's like, oh, I don't, I don't know who that is. He's like, how do you, he says to me, how do you spell Crenshaw? He's trying to look it up. So I turn around, I look at the window, and I spell it. C-R-E-N, right? And we're spelling out Crenshaw. And the guy's like, uh, okay, well, you know, he's like, I don't know who he is, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, okay, this is, this is crazy. The guy lives down the street. He's on TV constantly. His sign's across the street. And frankly, in this tiny little gym, you don't know the one-eyed Navy SEAL who comes in here and works out. Like, that's the craziest part of the whole story. So to think that we don't have, we have too much money, or this guy doesn't even know he's his own celebrity in the gym. And Dan said, well, he's a millennial. (laughs) So... You know, that is funny, though, because when I interviewed Dan Crenshaw, it's hard to interview him because everyone just comes up uh, during the interview and just shakes his hand. And it's like, hey, I was asking him a question. <laughs> but I understand people want to meet him. They want to see him. It's really cool to, to uh, see someone like that in person because he's so recognizable with his uh, eye patch. All right. So we're walking through. Um, you know, it was a big Republican event at Astros Stadium, you know, for the baseball game. Mm-hmm. And so um, we were walking to our seats and my wife and I was walking with Dan and his wife. And so we're walking together toward the seats, and every 15 feet, people stop him. And, you know, they, can I take a picture with you? Can I introduce you to my family? You know, it was, it was, it was, I'm happy for him, cool for him. And I thought, that happens to me, like, once a month. But Dan, it happens, like, every 15 feet. It was, mm-hmm. so, he says, Just, can you take the picture? Sure, Dan. So, <laughs> <laughs> so my job was to take the picture, which is cool. I don't I mean, I, I couldn't care less. It's funny. After this, we'll get a picture with you. Yeah, all right. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Well, <laughs> hey, you know, I gotta say, what what you said about you know money and politics. I actually, I actually do agree with that. You know, I think people should be putting more money into their candidates that they actually believe in. You know, if they if they believe in someone, they should be willing to spend their money for it. But we'll be back in just a moment talking more hardline politics with Justin Lurie. You're listening to Liberty Talks Podcast with Michael Anderson and John Douglas. Follow us on Twitter at Michael, the number four, Freedom, and at Real John Douglas. Subscribe and listen to the show on Spreaker, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Liberty Talks Podcast is brought to you by all of our musician contributors and musical producers, including Shamari and Jarrell Beats. So we're back with Justin Lurie. 
and we're just going to shoot right into these questions. And the first thing I want to ask you is uh, about the temperature in this country right now. What we've seen in the past couple of days is we had a synagogue get sh uh, shot up by an anti-Semite, and we also had uh, a nut jobs and pipe bombs to CNN and to a couple of Democratic politicians. And what happened was that Republicans and Trump got blamed for it. Uh, well, how do you feel about that? Anytime anything bad happens, so the weather is bad, it's, it's Trump's fault. I mean, you take the, the synagogue shooter. I mean, the guy is clearly unhinged. And he was very anti-Trump. And this is the thing that really, really gets to me, is that Trump is the most Jewish president we've ever had. Uh, his, his daughter is Jewish. His son-in-law is Jewish. His grandkids are Jewish. And people are calling him an anti-Semite. He's the closest president to Israel we've ever had. And so the guy who shot up the synagogue said... Trump is too Jewish. He's too in bed with um, with Israel, and that's why I'm going to take I'm going to take it out on these people because because the Jewish people are destroying our country, and Trump is helping them, and so naturally Trump gets blamed for that. Now I would have liked the press to say, well, we are blaming Trump because uh, we think he's too close to the Jewish people, just like the guy said, and see what they say there. It's the hypocrisy is just so. So overwhelming. Now, the pipe bomber, and I don't know, I'll never excuse for what he did, but when you look at the temperature, as you said, and all the Antifa and the mobs and everything like that, if you keep pushing and pushing and pushing, someone's going to break out there. Someone snapped. He, the, the guy probably was not a long road snapping, is what it looked like. Probably just a short little stick that broke the camel back. And when you keep pushing and pushing, yeah, people people get disgusted, people get angry. What do we call the Kavanaugh effect right now? People are angry. Normal people. I'm assuming you are too. I am. I am just wretchedly upset. And I know so many hundreds of people who are not even that involved in politics, who are also extremely upset about what happened. Now this guy, he pushed a little bit too far. Now the blame Trump for this is is hysterically pathetic. I would agree with you on that. And I think if someone commits an act of violence and we're going to blame it on our politicians, we actually have a standard for when we can blame violence on a politician. What do you think that standard is? Well, uh, if you go back to Bernie Sanders' supporter who shot up a baseball field and almost killed Steve Scalise, right? Uh, I, can't, I can't think of how Bernie's responsible, but Eric Holder said that uh, you have to kick them when they go low. Or when you look at Maxine Waters, get in their face, yada, 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 uh, with the mobs. I blame her for... I mean, I specifically blame her for all the kind of mob violence you have against uh, Candace, Candace Owens, is that her name? Yes. Uh, when she was, she was kind of attacked by that mob, and of course we all know about the restaurants mm -hmm. in D.C. area. I specifically blame Maxine. But to answer your question is, when you specifically call for people to get in people's faces, that's on, that's on them. I would agree, and that's my standard too, is that if you... Uh, don't specifically call for violence. You don't get blamed for violence. And so I think when the Democrats blame Trump for uh, these terrorist attacks, I think it's sick and disgusting. I, I think that only the individual is to blame for uh, any action committed. But I think this goes into a good question that I have for you, Justin. As you said, you said, especially with all the stuff that the left is doing, Democrats are doing, that even average Americans are getting upset. Even a lot of independents are coming into the GOP and coming into the more right-leaning politics because of all this. And my question to you, Justin, is 
what is what is some of your advice or what is a call to action uh, for you to young liberty activists or young conservatives, even independents, that want a less intrusive government in their personal lives, want criminal justice reform, a sober-minded foreign policy, and a lot of these people, you know, I find to be either young conservatives or, like you said, independents that are getting fed up with the left. What mm-hmm. is a call to action to you to say, we need to come together and vote for the Republican Party or Republican candidates? If, if I understand your question right, it's, uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you reach them? How do you, how do you convince these people who are with these general ideas to vote red? Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? Well, it's, I mean, it's pretty summed up pretty good. Uh, I like that phrase, mobs. Well, I guess it's jobs, not mobs. I almost said that wrong, right? But you look at the hysterics, and you just have to really easily point it out. I mean, Marsha Blackburn's video that was re-released yesterday that Google was was banning. Have you seen the video? I haven't. Okay. I, I thought it was a really good video. It's basically just clips of the mobs, and we're not talking, you know... Uh, Mobs in some far-flung places. These are these are at press conferences. This is in D.C. This is in the U.S. Capitol building. This is during the Senate confirmation. It's just short little clips of the mobs just doing mob stuff. And if that doesn't condemn that movement, I don't know what does. But you don't have to characterize it. You don't have to uh, describe it. You show it for what it is. And it's the same reason that uh, just kind of and as a little bit aside, it always drove me crazy about Mitt Romney and John McCain, is Obama had so much in his past that he was open about, but he never, they never talked about it because they're so, such gentlemen. And what I mean is um, Obama's books, his autobiographies, because you know, there's three of them, I think it is, two or three of them. And he also had audio tapes. And all you had to do was run the commercial, just run a simple commercial with show the page and have the audio playing of Obama saying, when I was in college, I was a member of the, uh, the Socialist Party, stuff like that. Or then Page, whatever. He says, I did, and this is a direct quote, I did drugs enthusiastically. I did everything I could get my hands on. That's what he said. Play the audio tape. But they didn't do it because they thought they were above that. No, that's who the guy is. You can decide, you the voter can decide, do I want a guy who used to do this or not? Oh, was he young? Well, that's up to the voter to decide. You don't need to you know, hold it back. And so, long answer, but segueing back to what you said, the question is, just show it for what it is. You don't need to characterize it. You don't need to describe it. I, I would tend to agree with that. And uh, especially, I, I think that Mitt Romney and John McCain were not nearly as strong enough on Obama as they should have been. They should have... Exactly. They should have been showing pictures of him with Louis Farrakhan, showing how he's openly associating himself with an anti-Semite who uh, caused, well, at that time he hadn't done it, but at that time he had uh, led the uh, riots, and where were you, what city was the riots at? Well, he, he, read, he led riots against uh, Orthodox Jews. He uh, repeatedly has called Jews satanic and that of the devil. Mm-hmm. Even just recently, he called them insects. And after the Pittsburgh massacre, he, uh, Louis Farrakhan even uh, said that the satanic Jew in their satanic temple or the satanic synagogue. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and this is the person that Obama associated himself with, invited to the White House many times. And 
John McCain and Ronnie never picked up on that because, like you said, they were above. They were they were above still that. stuck on Jeremiah Wright, who mm-hmm. is just as bad as Farrakhan, of course, just as bad. But they kept focusing on Wright, which makes sense because Wright did marry them. Wright, uh, you know, he married Michelle and, and Barry, uh, and then Wright was on the stage with Barry when he made his announcement back in two thousand six. I guess it is that he's going to run for president. Who was on the stage? Jeremiah Wright. But yeah, they, they tried to play it, but it didn't work because the media media would ignore it. They'd make excuses. But bring in another one. Bring in Farrakhan. And he, who, is the, who is the head of DNC right now? Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison is a massive anti-Semite. Massive. He doesn't even hide it. I don't understand for one, one minute why America's Jewish population continues to strongly support the Democratic Party. It makes no sense to me. No oh, sense to me at all. I would agree. And we got time for one more question, Michael? You described yourself as an ideologue, right? Mm-hmm. When you said you're an ideologue, right, yeah. you didn't really put a label on yourself. But it sounds like you're just a limited government advocate, right? Like small government, small taxes, but a strong national defense. It seems like limited government, right? That's limited right. government conservative. But how would That's you right. like describe your ideology? Well, I would, I would make those bullet points, I guess is the easy way to do it. Uh, limited regulation. Limited government. I don't. I don't want to have this massive entitlement program like we have now. Uh, if you look at the 1930s, the Socialist Party of America, you look at their platform. Essentially, their platform became true. We have cradle to grave entitlements. Uh, if you remember Obama's food stamp push, we put millions and millions and millions of more people on food stamps. Partially because uh, the Obama economy was so bad, and partially because he kept expanding and expanding the reach of who should get it to try to create this, again, cradle-to-grave government entitlement. I mean, socialism is great as long as you don't run out of somebody else's money. I mean, to borrow that very, very famous line from Thatcher, because it makes so much sense. So that's one part, the limited entitlement state. The second part, taxes. I think our tax system is a mess. I don't know anybody who, who thinks that it actually works. My, my theory, I strongly, strongly believe this, it's called the fair tax. We eliminate all the income taxes and we move to a purely, purely consumption-based tax. Stop taxing productivity. I mean, it's pretty simple. If I tell you, hey, how about you write a book, right? And, uh, and I'm gonna market this book for you and you're gonna make, you're gonna make an extra X dollars. It's gonna take you, let's say, six months of your life to do it, but you're gonna make X dollars more. So then you say, okay, hey, it sounds great. You go to your CPA and your CPA says, well, hold on, you know after taxes, because it's marginal income, you're only gonna make Y dollars in your actual banking account. And you're gonna say, wait a second, I'm gonna do all this work for this net dollars, doesn't make any sense. But now the book publisher, and the retailer, and the editor, and the copywriter, and the person who, who prints it, and, and then also, let's say the, uh, oh, who else writes it works on a book? Okay, all the marketing people. So you're gonna have dozens of people who are no longer, because you're gonna say, I'm not gonna do it, right? But all those dozens of people are relying on you to want to write this book up. But because we are taxing productivity, it's not worth it to you. So now all those other people are taken out of that value chain, out of that supply chain, and do not make any money. And that's the simplest way to look at why taxing productivity doesn't work. Expand the taxing reach. We all know half America doesn't pay taxes. How many people are underground economy who don't pay taxes at all on anything? So if they go out to the movies, 
federal tax. They buy a car, federal tax. They buy this beautiful microphone, federal tax. We will make more money as a government. More money will come in, and it's fair. And you know what else? You don't have to worry about the IRS anymore come April. Why should you? Why should we be Americans be so scared of our government? Is that the whole point of our government, not to be scared of them? Well, Justin, where can our listeners find you at? Uh, Twitter. I like to tweet now. I learned, I learned what Twitter is about a year ago. I mean, I already knew what it was, but I didn't really use it. Now I love Twitter. At uh, Lurie for Houston. L-U-R-I-E. For Houston. And then we also do a Facebook live show uh, on the Republicans of Houston Facebook page. And, uh, and hopefully I'll continue to be on the Isaiah Factor. Every time I get a text or a phone call to come on, I get, I get very excited. So Isaiah Factors on Fox. Fox Houston. I love Isaiah. It's great. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Justin Lurie. Thank you, guys.